Welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers. I'm Becky Bailey, the creator of Conscious Discipline, an expert in education, child development, and a lifelong teacher and learner. For those listening who are not aware of Conscious Discipline, it is a comprehensive, brain-based, trauma-informed self-regulation program that integrates social-emotional learning, culture, and discipline. So many people, when they talk about conscious discipline, say these words, you know, I don't think it's going to work for my children. It only works for those children, not these children. And I've heard that so much. I've actually experimented with that theory. So one elementary school I went to, and I focused just on third and fifth grade. And we focused on it, focused on it. Then we decided, okay, now let's go down to pre-K second. And the pre-K second teachers, along with the principal, said, oh, well, this is only a program for older students. Then the next school I did, I did it in reverse. I started with pre-K second, did it with pre-K second, and then we started to move it up third through fifth. And they said, oh, well, this is only a program for, for early childhood. And the same happens with regular education and special education. So a good example of this is actually the first district to adopt conscious discipline was Dade County in Miami, Florida. They adopted the program for their preschool special education classes. And this is pretty much district-wide. At the same time, we tried to offer it and expose it to the regular education preschool teachers, and they said, no, it's only a special education program. So 22 years later, Many have come to realize that this brain-based program is for all children and all adults. Age is not an issue, and disability is not an issue also. We all need help in learning how to self-regulate ourselves and certainly to do it enough to reach the higher centers of our brain in order to solve problems, get along with others, and set and achieve goals. And this is regardless of any label or any disability. So today we're talking about autism, and it is the fastest growing disability in the United States, and it's growing at a rate of 14% per year. And that, if you just can imagine, I mean, people would jump up and down if the stock market was growing at 14% per year. This is more than childhood cancer, diabetes, or AIDS in children combined. And it turns out to be about one in every 59 children are on the spectrum of autism. But the interesting thing is it's also widely accepted that Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Andy Warhol, and even Bill Gates are on the autism spectrum. So today we're talking with Elizabeth Montero Cefalo. And she graduated from the University of Miami and actually was instrumental in all that happened down in Miami years ago. She graduated with the master's in early childhood special education and is a master trainer with conscious discipline for number a number of years. Elizabeth began her career as an early elementary special education educator and excels in building connections with the most difficult children. Her passion, her joy, and her specialty is an infant toddler, pre-K special education, ESE and autism, and she is bilingual in English and Spanish. So let's now take a moment, take a deep, deep breath. (sighs) Relax. Listen. 
and welcome Elizabeth to Real Talk for Real Teachers. Well, thank you, Becky. And I must say that I am absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to your listeners about two of the things I'm very, very passionate about, one being conscious discipline and how much it has influenced my world, not just professionally, but also personally. And the other topic, which is um, working with children with special needs and specifically working with children with autism and how it has impacted myself in the classroom and some of the different things, the adaptations and modifications that we made and and applying conscious discipline in, in that capacity. And one of the things I, I thought of first was the the opportunity that Becky had to, to once come to my classroom. And at the time I was teaching in a classroom, which was, uh, I had children with all special needs and varying exceptionalities. But I think at the time, about six of my, my students uh, had autism. And um, it, it was an interesting day. And there was lots of uh, things that she got to see within the day, how we were able to create structure for the children so they knew what to expect, how we use visual supports and and how we also formed some really strong connections with some of the kids that probably would be the most resistant to connection, I think. And what was the um, the funniest part was at the very end of the day, the students got picked up and we had a little opportunity to have a um, little, little downtime to debrief a little bit. And she just kind of looked at me and said, wow it worked. (laughs) And so I kind of looked at her puzzled going, well, what do you mean it worked? She said, well, you know, this is amazing to see how children with special needs were really impacted by conscious discipline. And I said, well, I really believe that conscious discipline was created for children with special needs, wasn't it? And she said, well, it's for all children as well as adults. And I remember kind of questioning her and going, well, um, is it a program or is it an approach that um, helps us so that children can feel safe? Well, yeah, it is. Okay. Is it an approach that helps us connect with all children, even the children who might be resisting it the most? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I went on to question, um, well, is it, a, is it an approach that helps us build executive skills in children who maybe have deficits in, in that? And she goes, yeah that too. And I said, okay, so it was created to work with children with special needs. (laughs) And I just left it at that. Well, the interesting thing is, it is for, for all children, but at times in working with children um, on the spectrum, uh, it can pose some challenges. So this time uh, together, we'll be talking a little bit about how to take conscious discipline, the philosophy, the truths about conscious discipline, and bringing that to life, when, especially when working with children on the spectrum. So the first thing I thought we'd start off with is just really understanding what autism is, and just so we're all on the same page with this. So I'll either refer to it as children with autism, or I'll say children on the spectrum. So it's either autism or autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD. And this refers to a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges, especially in social skills. Um, There might be some repetitive behaviors and 
Um, also some speech and nonverbal communication uh, for some children. Um, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, the prevalence of autism at this point is one in about 59 children. I remember when I first started working with children on the spectrum, and it was about one in 150 at the time. So um, things have definitely changed. And the likelihood of a child within your, your family or some of your students, um, you're, you're probably impacted in some sort of way with, with a child um, on the spectrum as well. And the interesting thing about autism is that there's so many subtypes, meaning that each person with autism can have very unique strengths and very unique challenges, just like anyone else, right? And one of the things I want you to keep in mind as we chat through some of this is that uh, with with children with autism spectrum disorder, we sometimes, um, if you're a teacher in a classroom and you've worked with a child or you've had a student with autism in your classroom, we kind of think we have it down to a science. At least I thought I did. Um, and, and the truth of all of this is when you've worked with one child on the spectrum, well, you've in fact worked with one child on the spectrum. And that's in fact why we call it a spectrum. So diverse and so, so different. When I was first asked to do this podcast, um, one of the first things that came to mind was the story of a little boy in my classroom at the time, and, and we'll refer to him as Jordan. And this was very early on in my application of conscious discipline. So I had some of the lingo. I had some of the understanding. I had made some of the initial mindset shift, but I was still kind of working my way through the understanding of of most everything there. So it was still very early for me. Well, before Jordan even came to our classroom, um, my teammate and I sat down and, you know, of course, any good team, we, we started looking through his, his IEP and started reading through, you know, just what his goals are and his benchmarks. And we also started reading through um, some of the anecdotal information from other schools, other schools that he had been to. You see, he had been kicked out of about two to three schools and, um, and he ended up in my classroom. And as as I was reading through that IEP, um, if you'd have seen my face and, and my eyes were just bugged out going, wow, this is, I can't, you know, I can't believe this child has done this. Look what he did over here. Oh, this was terrible. I mean, you would have thought I was reading a James Patterson thriller if you'd have seen my face. So with my teammate, we decided that before Jordan even came into our classroom, we needed a plan. And so we had a plan, and our plan was just packed with strategies and um, you know visual supports that we had in the classroom, individual schedules that already laminated and posted up and ready to go. I had um, individual work baskets that he could work on so that you know it was it was patterned and and he could pick up on that pattern and he could create that safety. So. We had a plan. What was interesting about that is to to quote Tyson, <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody has a plan and get until you get punched in the face. And that's exactly what happened. We had a plan, and guess who else had a plan? <laughs> well, Jordan had a plan too. 
Well, when Jordan finally came into the classroom, one of the things I started feeling was a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. I remember going, why isn't he going to the individual schedule? I'm, I'm teaching it the way I've taught it to all the other children on the spectrum. Why is it not working with him? Why is it that when I say we're doing this, he would do the opposite? He would, in fact, do the opposite of everything. I started thinking to myself, he is a nonconformist. And that just got under my skin and just pushed my buttons. And really, pretty much with all of this, I I remember just getting home and just being exhausted. And of course, my whole family knew who Jordan was, because that was always the topic of of dinnertime conversation. Well, how did Jordan do today? And I kind of go, well... He, he didn't follow along. He didn't follow the schedule. He tried running out of the classroom again. He, he, he tantrumed. He got really, really upset whenever we transitioned. I don't know what else to do. Um, in fact, I remember thinking to myself, I have tried everything with this child. There just isn't any other strategy or gimmick that I can do at this point. There's nothing, nothing that's working. Um, he made me work really, really hard for my money. <laughs> well, that's what I thought at the time. I also realized that at that moment, I felt like I had a broken bridge between Jordan and I, where I had made some connections with some of the other children in my classroom, which were a little bit easier to connect with. With Jordan, it wasn't that way. I felt like I had to work really, really hard to just get a little glance in my direction or maybe a little bit of joint attention, but it was really, really hard to get all of that. I felt like it was a broken bridge at that time. So my teammate and I sat back and said, wait a second, we've got this. We know what we can do because we know about conscious discipline. Yes, we've been trying the strategies that we know that work and are effective for children on the spectrum, but we in fact forgot to naturally breathe, um, you know, set the tone for my intention. We really forgot all of that stuff. So after about a week or so of him being in the classroom, we stepped back and we decided We need to focus more on building the connection. We totally forgot about building a connection in a different way. So what did I mean by that? And I'm going to break this down. So the first part was going to be my intention. When I walked into the room, what was my intention in that day? Did I want to control everything? Was I judging myself? Was I judging my teammate? Where was my intention? The next part of it was I needed to take time to observe Jordan without an agenda, without some sort of preconceived notion of what should be, right? And then what became almost secondary was the intervention. So I'm going to walk you through this. So the first thing that I highly recommend is that you check in with your intention. What is the energy or the vibe that you bring to a situation. You see, at times, I would have the fake calm on the outside, and I definitely had the anxiety on the inside and the judgment on the inside. And I knew that Jordan could read that in me. In fact, many children on the spectrum can pretty much smell your intention before you even walk into the room. So I had to check my intention Am I trying to control the interaction 
Or am I trying to truly connect with Jordan? Am I trying to judge myself and my ability or his behavior? Or am I willing to accept that this is where I'm at and I'm a work in progress, just like all of us? And am I willing to accept that he's having a hard time and that's what the behaviors are simply saying to me? The other part of this was listening to my inner speech. A lot of times our inner speech goes into why me? And I don't know about you, and if you're a classroom teacher, you might be sometimes asking yourself, why? Why is this child in my classroom? I don't know what to do with them. And so I question that too. Why me? I already have six children who are on the spectrum in my classroom, and I'm already filled to capacity, and I don't know what else to do. So my inner speech had to change tremendously, right? And this, and the main reason for all of this is because your intention actually sets the trajectory of whatever interaction that follows. And I knew that the kids could pick up on what my true intention is. And I most certainly couldn't fake it to make it. (laughs) It had to be authentic. And that was hard. Now with Jordan, how did this look? Well, the first thing is I had to see him differently. I had to see his behavior differently. So instead of seeing our relationship as a broken bridge, I started to see it as a bridge that was in the process of being built. And I was so excited for each of those pieces because each of those pieces really brought us closer and closer together. The other part is, instead of thinking of him as a nonconformist, I had to start thinking of him more as a child who is simply uniquely wired to see and understand the world in a very different way. And what this created for me was a great deal of intrigue. I was curious to find out more about Jordan. I got to actually put down the IEP and step away from the benchmarks and all the goals and all the demands. And that was hard. But I had to put those things aside to know that in order for us to have a true connection, it needed to come from a space of authentic, authentic love and relationship. The next thing, after I really, really checked with my intention and my goal, was that I wanted to see the world through the child's perspective. So the next step with all of this is start to see things through the child's eyes. If you've been to some of our Conscious Discipline Institutes, we focus so much on that. See it from the child's perspective, which really starts to tap into true empathy. And What I mean by this specifically, and what it would look like, let's say, in the classroom or in your home as well, is it would take us some time to observe the child. Now, when I say observe the child, well, um, what I mean by that is is basically setting up a non-judgmental experience for the child. And And this is really difficult, especially if you've got a full classroom of children and we want to make sure that everybody's safe. And how can I do that? What's that going to look like? Well, one of the things that that we would do, and then my, my team and I, we would 
basically decide, well, who's the child that we're going to observe? And here's what exactly what it would look like. If it was my turn to observe the child, um, I would basically say to my teammates, um, I'm going to step back and I'm going to observe. And I would tell them, let's say it was Jordan, I'm going to observe Jordan for the next five minutes. And what that meant to my team was they were not to sit one-to-one with a child or just with a small group, but they were basically all hands on deck. They are watchful of the entire classroom so that I can take a moment to step out and see the world in a very, very different way. Right? And so it's it's not just observing the child, but I also had to let go of my personal agenda. Um, you know, what am I looking for here? What do I want to make sure? Is he socializing? Any of that. What I really wanted to look at was what does he seem to gravitate towards, right? What helps him calm when needed? So observe the child, see what they gravitate towards. Um, look for patterns, right? Are there things, certain things that trigger the child, right? Something that sets them off. It could be during a transition. It could be when another child is a little bit too close to them. It could be when they don't have enough materials in front of them, right? And simply just embracing that experience of observation, so many very useful bits of information will come up for you. You get to watch and see and learn a little bit about how they seem to calm and what they seem to like and what they're interested in. So to kind of sum that up, it's we want to be able to learn exactly how the child learns. And one of the things, too, that I found in observing a child in that moment, even if it was just for five minutes or ten minutes or any of that, was that I had the opportunity to really offer the child a very respectful moment. I wasn't trying to change the child's behavior. I wasn't trying to teach them anything at that moment. It was simply because I was interested in what they were doing. And this starts to sound like one of the conscious discipline skills and the skill of empathy, right? Really stepping out of your agenda and just leaving that behind to be able to quietly observe the moment just as it is. And this also starts to sound like that power of acceptance. So if you're familiar with that, that whole idea of the moment is as it is. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to like the behavior, right? But the power of acceptance just gives us that moment to quietly observe without having to judge the situation. And that's quite helpful, especially in that observation time. One of the things that you'll notice as you observe the child and what patterns they seem to gravitate towards is that it starts to help you become present and help you become more mindful just by watching what they're experiencing. And one of the things here that I found so helpful in just observing the child was that I could take some of this information and I could actually weave it into any other interactions. Naturally, I would want to, um, you know, pick something that the child was mostly interested in. But it depends on what you're really observing. So in regards to Jordan, when I would take the time to step out and just observe him, I started noticing some of the patterns. And 
here were some of these things. And as I talk about these behaviors, you can see how well these behaviors were his behaviors, but we can easily see how these behaviors could trigger the adult. And one of the things that he would do is if he didn't like something, he would just get up and walk away. In fact, he didn't just walk away, he would run. And he wouldn't just run in the classroom, he would run out of the classroom and out of the school. So needless to say, I had to wear tennis shoes pretty much every day because I was more likely than not going to be running after him. (laughs) One of the other things that he did was, um, as a soothing mechanism, he would do a lot of perimeter walking. So if we were outside on the playground, he would just kind of walk around where the fence was and he would just go around and around. I started noticing he'd do that. A lot of times when we'd have group activities and you know that was a little bit overwhelming for him, I could observe that. And he would just sort of get up and start perimeter walking all the way around the classroom. So a lot of times we would kind of say, Jordan, come sit down, Jordan, come sit down and come join us and try to navigate through that. But the truth was there was something about the walking and the movement that was actually really soothing for him. I had to see the behavior not as a nuisance or something that was trying to make me angry. Of course not. Instead of giving away my power, I had the opportunity to go, this is a behavior that is telling me something. In fact, all behaviors are communicating something. I I don't want to shut it down. I want to um, learn about it. And so it was helpful in that observation process. The other thing we noticed is, are some of the triggers. So for Jordan, um, one of his biggest triggers (laughs) are group time and music activities. So we would turn on the music and he would scream bloody murder just like that. The other one was um, anytime we would transition from one thing to the next, well, he would also scream or he would run out of the classroom. So Seeing that that was a trigger for him was going to be very helpful for me in designing the future interactions and interventions as well. So what do you do with this information? Now that we've checked with our own intention and what am I bringing to the table? What's my energy speaking? um, Because our energy does speak volumes. And also, what am I learning when I observe the child? What do I do with this information that I now have on here? Because mind you, a lot of the things that you observe, such as the running and the perimeter walking and the trigger with the music and all of that that we found in Jordan, sometimes those things aren't written up in the paperwork and in their IEPs and all of that. So what do I do with this information? Well, now we can take this and fit it into a beautiful, beautiful package. So conscious discipline follows a a structure of safety, connection, and problem solving. So you can visualize this as a building, the foundation and the structure and the, you know, the roof of the building. Um, I like to sometimes think of it as a tree. So safety would be represented by the root system of a tree. So very important and so, so dependent on the soil and and the warmth and the water and, and, and the time that you plant it. All of those very, very important things. The safety piece. And then the trunk of the tree um, will, will represent uh, the connection, right? So with all of that, we go, well, 
if I don't have a solid root system, then obviously this tree is not going to develop that branch or isn't going to develop that trunk. So we must have safety first in order to have that development of connection. And it ignites that interest and connection. And then the next piece you'll see is at the very, very top, the leaves of the tree. And that will represent what we refer to in conscious discipline as problem solving, right? Building those social skills. That is where you have all those executive skills and that executive functioning. Well, when I first started with Jordan, I focused so much on building those social skills and doing the problem solving. And I oopsed and failed to develop the root and the trunk the development of safety and connection. And that's when we stepped back and looked at it a little different. So your first thing is you want to make sure that you're creating safety. Now, when I refer to safety and working with children on the spectrum, um, one would think, well, is it, you know, that the doors are locked and that the plugs are in the outlet so nobody gets hurt? Is that the safety that we mean? Well, of course, those things are important. But when I'm talking specifically about children who are on the spectrum, safety is about predictability, about structure, about lots and lots of visual supports. So I highly recommend that you step back. And if you are in the classroom, it would be to look at your daily routine and go, okay, where is there a transition and how can I create a visual support here? How can I sort of choreograph the entire day so that the entire day becomes more predictable and in essence, safe? So without visual supports and without structure and predictability, children on the spectrum, in fact, all children, don't feel safe. So we want to make sure that those are in place. So in regards to Jordan, one of the things that we did for him was we created that individual schedule. So we went back to that individual schedule after we really created that safety and connection, right? And that individual schedule really gave him those those supports and those visuals so that he knew what was going to happen in the course of the day. We also created lots and lots of visuals of things that he loved to do. So at some point, he could communicate by showing me or pointing or bringing the picture over to me and request a particular activity that was his favorite. And also in regards to some of the loud sounds, um, when he would go into group time, if there was something in, uh, to do with music or any, anything involving um, instruments or anything like that, um, one of the things was we provided him, and as well as any other child in the classroom, with some headphones. So he was welcome to use those if he liked. And for one of the very first times, he joined us for a group time with his headphones on, and, and it was absolutely lovely because... Even when he was running out of the classroom, he was still part of our, our, our school family and still part of our classroom, of course, but it was so lovely to have him there to be able to experience it at first hand. Then after that safety, we want to really ignite an interest in connection. So what do I mean by that? It's not about forcing connection. I remember early on some of those strategies and we would look at the child and we'd say, look at me, eyes on me. And I would you know, point, point to my eyes to make sure that the child would look at me. It almost felt like I was forcing connection. When does that ever work? 
It just totally didn't make any sense. But instead of that, when we think of connection, of course with all children, but especially with children on the spectrum, think of it as creating just enough curiosity for the child so that they might be a little bit more willing to walk into a beautiful space of connection with you. And one of those things was to create activities and games. It could be I love you rituals if you're familiar with that as well. Um, Things that the child would enjoy. So based on my observation with Jordan, he loved running. He loved moving around and running out of the classroom and running outside and all of those things. Well, how was I to take something that was not appropriate and turning it into something appropriate? Well, we played chase. We played lots and lots of games of chase, hide and go seek, I'm going to get you. And what was very, very interesting um, was that the more I played the games that he liked, the more likely he was to engage with me. And this was amazing. These were the times where I had the most sustained eye contact. And it really wasn't so much about eye contact. It was more so about joining in that attention, meaning we were there together, we were experiencing it together, and we both knew we were there together in that moment. And that really is connection. And this had to happen first before I could even step into um, doing any of the I love you rituals that I had done with so many of my children and creating that face-to-face play and that interaction and how lovely all of those were. I needed to get his buy-in first. So get the buy-in of the child, play the games that they like, and, and really enjoy it. And then the very top of our tree, so the, 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 the leaves, so to speak, um, is really that idea of teaching problem solving. Well, this I always say is kind of like the icing on the cake. This is the easy part. You know, I worked in a district there where they, um, you know, gave us some phenomenal training on, um, you know, how to teach social skills and how to provide children with, um, you know, activities that build these executive skills. So when I learned about conscious discipline, it was like it made so much sense because I could do all these things. But none of those social skills and none of those things that you teach um, as far as problem solving can occur unless you create that foundation of safety and connection. So with that said... Um, one of the things I do want to um, point out in, in concluding this, this webinar is that we don't have to be an expert in autism. In fact, I'm not an expert in autism. I've worked with numerous children on the spectrum, but I am not an expert in autism. And you don't have to be an expert. We simply have to be willing to be present. And what that requires is that we let go of trying to control the outcome and try to control um, how it's going to play out or how it should play out and step into trust, which sometimes is very hard. Trust in the process and trust that it will be effective. And in conclusion, things to keep in mind, check with your intention. What's your energy? What are you bringing to the table? because it definitely influences the interactions. See it through the child's perspective. Take a moment to step back and observe in a non-judgmental space. 
and trust that your interventions will be effective if, in fact, you've created that safety and connection. And if they are in place, sky's the limit. And above all, have fun. With that said, I am Elizabeth Montero Cefalo, and it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you, Elizabeth. What a joy to hear your passion come through your words and reach out to our listeners. Indeed, I could feel your intention, your energy as you stepped us through the three steps to help all children, especially children on the spectrum. What an insightful treat. Thank you. I hope you'll join us soon again. So what is Becky up to? Well, my up to and my celebration are somewhat mingled in this uh, in this podcast. So the first thing I'm up to is we are actually received our parent education that I mentioned on a previous podcast, but we're sending it off now to the Office of Head Start for inclusion on their approved list of parent programs. So we're very excited about that and look for great news to come. Also then, so that's kind of a what am I doing and also a celebration, but here's another celebration. Today, actually, this very day that I'm speaking to you, the Spanish version of I Love You Rituals, which has taken over a year, year and a half to complete, is gone to print. And we actually expect that around May. And let me tell you about this. This took a lot of people working together, and it took Spanish rituals from many different Spanish-speaking countries, turned them into positive rhymes, just like we do with the I Love You rituals, put movement and music together so we can build those bonds face-to-face with children uh, who speak Spanish. So I'm so excited for that. So with those, and until next time, I wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers by Dr. Becky Bailey, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.